Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, if you are listening to this on the day of its release, it is election week here in the USA. And it is no accident that I'm releasing this interview because this conversation with Jackie Shelton Green will be a balm for your unease and a motivation to claim your narrative, whatever that may be. In this episode, our North Carolina Poet Laureate, the incredible Jackie Shelton Green, delivers restorative words, creative encouragement, and spiritual sustenance. Listen and breathe as Jackie muses about writing through difficult times, retreating sister right style, and her amazing new poetry album, The River Speaks of Thirst. I'd like to quickly mention the North Carolina Writers Network and their upcoming online conference November 10th through 14th, 2020. Jackie Shelton Green will be delivering the keynote address there on Friday, November 13th. If you're unfamiliar, please check it out. The North Carolina Writers Network is a membership organization that provides programs and resources for writers of all levels of skill and experience in North Carolina and beyond. Find out more at ncwriters.org. You'll also want to check out the show notes for this episode, where you'll see Jackie Shelton Green's bio, links to her album, The River Speaks of Thirst, her video poem, Oh My Brother, interview articles, and more. Connecting with Jackie Shelton Green was one of the highlights of my year. She is a poetry rock star and a gift to our community. Enjoy. Hello, Jackie. Thank you so much for making time to talk this morning. Oh, Tamara, thank you for the invitation. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. Now, before we begin, I would just like to open with some gratitude. I feel so much gratitude for your poetry, your artistry and voice, your activism, your advocacy, your attention to North Carolina, and the education and wisdom that you offer so thank you so much for all of that. Thank you for, for such a beautiful, beautiful, oh, wow, such a beautiful gift of gratitude. It's always wonderful to to be seen and to be heard and to be affirmed, and especially in this season where we're very uncertain about our voices and how they're heard, how they're perceived, how they're translated or reimagined. So thank you for offering that in this space. You are welcome. I'd like to talk a little bit about what you just mentioned. This has been a difficult year for many people. And of course, there are difficult times throughout all of our lives, but it seems like this is a difficulty we're experiencing globally, nationally as a community. And I think that has had a different kind of an effect on different writers. Some people have lost their words. They seem to have lost the urge to write. And some people have been like creative fire hoses where they're just pouring words onto the page. And then some folks toggle back and forth. So they have a writing desert where they have nothing. And then they have a writing monsoon where they have everything in terms of their output. So I'm wondering about your experience of writing through difficult times and 
any words you can offer to writers who are trying to find their words right now? Well, for me, I, I guess I would be in that third category, the one that's just back and forth. The power of witness matters to me. I have allowed myself to learn what it really means to be still and be quiet in times like these and to realize that the writer is always scribing, even when we're not putting that to paper or inside of the computer. We are always writing. And this is one of those times where I feel like I, I need to give myself as much permission to stand still, looking from one side to the other, up and down, looking at my neighbors. And I mean that in a very global sense, experiencing what people are going through, asking myself, is there a place for me to be a kindred support to them right now? I'm asking myself, what does it mean to be human inside of this season where we are just all, all of us are facing tremendous trepidations? So having said that, writing always has always been available to me as that place of solace. I encourage everyone to lean more and more into their creative sides right now. Take more photographs. Document this time at home with your family. You know, your kids will be looking back saying, oh, those are pictures from that time when we couldn't go next door and play in the backyard with our friends. You know, what does it mean to preserve, to document, to name this time? So I think it's essential for those of us who are creative makers to be seeped in witness. I hope everyone is seeped in witness. As a matter of fact, I think if people were more mindfully seeped in witness, perhaps we would hear more compassionate listening happening. We would see more compassionate acts. We would see a need to be still instead of perhaps harming each other right now. But the writer, the artist has always had a place inside of every revolution. And I truly believe this too is a revolution of, of some type. Mm. So my advice is to stand up in our creativity uh, right now more than ever. Perhaps it's not the world, the greater world, but the world of our families, our children, our neighbors, our parents, our our grandparents, our close, close friends, right now they need may need the word from us, if that makes sense. Because we do offer a language to the unknown. That's what we do. We offer a language to the unknown. We offer a music to it. We offer dance to it. You know, I know dancers who are choreographing very mindful pieces during this time. So the advice I, I have is to think about what it means to be a critical thinker as a writing artist and how we use our writing as medicine, how the creativity becomes the medicine that we, that we need right now. And I think I offer that in the way I offered it because for each person, for each writer, it's very different. My writing experience right now is all about predominantly I'm blurbing a lot of people's new manuscripts that are forthcoming publications. I'm providing interviews like this. I'm keynoting 
literary festivals and literary conferences online all over the country and outside of the country. So that right now has been the mode, you know, that is requiring my voice. I am writing, but I'm not the writer who's been able to just go deep into hibernation and use this place, this time we're in, to use it as a writing, you know what I mean, as a Mm -hmm. machine for myself. I wish I could, but it's not happening. I appreciate, I receive, I understand, I honor my role right now pretty much as public servant, as one who holds the space. Right. I like very much this idea of expanding the idea of what it means to write beyond just putting words into the computer or putting words down on the paper, but to write is also to notice, to question, to hold space, to to offer up a single word so that it's not just about output, like producing products for people to consume, you know, that this idea of what it means to be a writer and a creative can expand to be whatever we need for it to be in that moment, whatever our community needs for that to be in that moment. And it just, I think it gives us permission to be more fully our creative selves. I really enjoy that expansion. I mean, we've been doing social distancing on our porch. We have a screened-in porch that's that's actually large enough to have a, a very small dinner party. I mean, like a four. Though we've been out there with family, you know, where we we have on our mask and and we sit on the porch and we may have tea or or just talk, you know, chatting. So I've been reading about how creative people are across the country and continuing to create a sensibility of community. And one of the things I've been fascinated by is a woman who created this movement called the Turquoise Tables. And people across the country paint these picnic tables and put them in their front yard. And the whole neighborhood knows that the Turquoise Table is an invitation to come sit and that someone else can join you. But I've been thinking about this for writers. What if writers had a turquoise table in their yard with a journal? And in this time of rain, perhaps a journal that would be inside of a plastic sleeve. Mm-hmm. And people could just come and write in the journal and communicate with each other in the journal. It could be someone leaving a recipe. It could right. be someone saying, yesterday was was my daughter's birthday, we had cupcakes, da 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 da. But how do we record our communal living experiences right now? Like, you know, what's happening at 226 is not the same thing that's happening at 224. I may be baking cookies with my two and a half year old granddaughter and the cu- and you know, it's a young couple next to her. They may be playing games on their computer. But how cool would it be to have record, community record? of how we are showing up in community right now. My husband and I have this daily ritual. I just, I I came across a journal, I think at TJ Maxx, and it was a white marble speckled journal that's identical to the countertop in our bathroom. (laughs) As a matter of fact, when it's laying there, you know, you barely see it. (laughs) And I thought, I'm going to buy this journal and we're going to leave notes for each other every day. Aww. 
So we started it. It's dated. And daily, you know, whoever records in it and puts it on your side. So back and forth, daily, we're writing these notes about the day to each other. So we will have these moments of this time because it is truly a different time. Yeah. Writing is everywhere. And all the experiences that we can have right now, you know, as a documentarian, especially with photography, especially especially with our telephones that are so sophisticated that we could be making videos every day. So yeah, I'm doing some of these as writing exercises. They're almost ekphrastic, you know, photographing what's on top of your your kitchen counter. That's your writing assignment today. Tomorrow's writing assignment is write about the first kitchen you can remember. You know, what's your favorite pair of shoes and where have they been? So just giving realistic sort of assignments mm-hmm. where we find the art in the everydayness and the ordinariness of living. You know, writing for me is, is not a lofty creative act. I celebrate it in the everydayness and the ordinariness of, of life every day. That's the sacredness of art. It's, it's everywhere in everything. I love those examples that you've just given because I think it emphasizes writing as connection and also going back to the beginning of our conversation about affirming people and validating them and being seen. It's it's saying to people just what you said, that these moments in your life matter. Every moment matters and has magic to it and can be just a deep well that you can dive into with meaning. So the shoes that you don't really pay attention to by the door, they mean so much. Look at how far they've traveled, you know, and the moment you have with your granddaughter, it means everything. She might remember that for the rest of her life. So I feel like, as you just said, so many people think that in order to write something that has quote, and I'm putting this in air quotes, meaning, it has to be some grand idea or a string of multisyllabic words when actually it is the stuff of daily living that we all can relate to and that really has that potency. Yeah. And and I think right now we have to see this is very fertile ground, but I'm not the artist that pushes it. You know, I'm not the writer that has told myself, oh, you should be writing about this right now. It is happening organically for me. And I'm not intellectually controlling what that looks like. Yeah. This year has been interesting to me personally for a lot of reasons. And one of the big changes that I've experienced is a a turn to embracing kind of an internal rhythm for my writing as opposed to an external rhythm. I was always somebody who was so motivated by deadlines that other people imposed on me. It's like, you have to have this done by this date for this person. And this year, I've been questioning more my own, you know, what, Tamara, what do you want to do? What, when do you want to do it? Are you tired? Do you need to rest? Or do you feel like you can be productive? And just giving myself permission to follow kind of the rise and fall of my own energy level and interest in a way that I've never done before. And that has been a revelation to me. I think it's helped my writing, but I think it's also just made me like an easier person to be around. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in our culture, we are programmed to do just what you're talking about, to always be on. Mm. In 2004, when I decided it was time to 
be the writer, not working at being the writer, meaning that I had a full-time job and was writing in, in those liminal spaces, but to be the writer, to come home and be the writer. Mm. I realized a lot about what you just said, that I was so programmed to be, you know, it's like producing, producing, producing inside of of this artificial cage of, of right. time. Western culture is just so limiting. We have forgotten how to be, how to just be still. And people are not comfortable with being still. We've We've seen that evidenced with this pandemic. I think our numbers would be so more controllable, perhaps. Right. If some people who are, okay, don't get me started politically. But we don't know how to be with ourselves. We need to be outside. We need to go to the mall. We we need the sports. We need, and, you know, the universe just said, I'm tired. I need a breath myself. I've been asking all of you for a breath. You've taken my breath. And she's taken our breath so she can breathe. And that's been the metaphor that showed up in my spirit in March. One morning, I actually, I remember one morning, it was probably late March, early April. I was standing outside with my husband in our yard and I said, do you hear that? And he was like, what? I was like, listen. And he said, what are you listening to? I said, I can hear the earth breathing. Mm. I said, I, I don't know if I've ever heard her breathe before. I said, but she's breathing. I said, there are no cars. We don't hear an airplane overhead. We, you know, we heard the first airplane just recently. Where we live is like a pathway, I guess, an aerial highway, Bali mm. Durham. And the air traffic has just tremendously slowed down. It, it totally was stopped at one time. But to just hear the earth breathe. So that taught me to learn how to listen to my own breathing. Because for me, that's where a lot of, of poetry, that's where a lot of story resides, is inside of, of inhalation and exhalation, mm-hmm. inside of those liminal spaces. I think if we can train ourselves to to be okay with being alone, only with our breath. It's an invitation for the muse to really show up. Yes, Uh, that gives me chills. It also makes me think about how difficult it is for me to be still and how much fear there is in me and I've seen in other people as well. If I'm still, if I open up to the muse, what might be there? It's frightening. For me personally, I think I think it's a it's an exercise of faith and trust that I can handle what's on the other side of that mm-hmm. silence and that breathing. And that for me, again, the page can contain it. You talk a lot about containers in the conversations that you've had with other people that and that's always resonated really well with me. That I can I can find a container to put this in and that can hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right now we need we need those containers. We need to build them. You know, not just for ourselves, but we need to to build them for others. I was thinking about I was thinking about the 60s and 70s during the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and the Cambodian occupation and I was thinking about how art was such a powerful container for what was going on, you know, 
the Freedom Rider singers and all of the, it was like a second Harlem Renaissance, just a resurgence of African-American poets and poets of color that, that really sees that moment, you know, in, in, in art. You know, and I see these ex- exhibits, there are a lot of retrospectives now happening, and I've been looking online at a couple of African-American curators who are kind of collecting all of this memorabilia from the 60s and 70s. And I just, you know, narrative is such a powerful container. Mm. Um, and seeing how narratives beget narratives. And it's just mindfully, you know, it's just mindfully encouraging for me knowing that this too shall pass. You know, we've been here before in similar times of disharmony, racism, sexism, all the isms. We've been here before, and this too shall pass. But I believe that it is up to artists to tell the truth about this time, because there's so much rhetoric and there's so much, I think about what our children will be wading through in history books about this time. So it's just so important that the truth tellers, that their voices are active right now. You know, I may not be engaged in, in writing about this this very moment, but I feel like I'm in this gathering mode, if that makes sense. My, my psyche, my heart, my intellect, you know, it's just gathering right. from this wellspring. And it's not always a, a wellspring that's running clear. Of nourishing, fruitful. It's not necessarily cool water, but it's flowing. It's flowing. Right. Some of it is a bloodbath, and that too must be remembered. So, you know, what what do we tell the children? That that's always my question about who we are as creative makers. What do we tell the children? Right. That they, they, they will ask. And, you know, children who are three, four, five when they're fifteen. They'll be reading about this time. What will we help them to remember? Better yet, how will we help them to experience what was happening during this time? <laughs> There's so many different pandemics going on. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. How do, we, how do we separate out the strands, but also realize that they're all braided together? They are distinct, and yet they are interwoven. And how do you, how do you make sense of that to, to yourself? to the children, to your community. Yeah. That feels like an artist's job. Well, it's, it's definitely, you know, I always tell people, art is that one place where you can create that bridge and all of our difference and all of our otherness. It's that one place where we can stand together. You know, I, I remind people that when you're on the dance floor getting your boogie on, you really don't care who the drummer voted for. Like Nobody's like looking at the drummer's <laughs> eye. Like, when did we vote it for? No, we're all enjoying his beat. Mm. If we can recognize that we have this connected heartbeat, that the heartbeats are connected in art, total strangers standing in front of a piece of art turn to each other and start talking. And that single heartbeat, they're experiencing the art together, even though separate, even though differently. They have different perspectives about what they're looking at but they're doing it together. And 
not just art that happens in sports, but it mm-hmm. really happens in art when we're singing together, when we're dancing, when we are witnessing a phenomenal piece of art, be it dance or sculpture or whatever, or an installation. We are experiencing it together at once. And that's, you know, to me, art is not safe, but it creates a bridge that's safe. Yeah. I would like to connect that to some other work that you do through Sister Right, and that you are the owner and founder of Sister Right, and that is an organization that provides writing retreats and travel excursions for women. So this idea of taking a breath, having some space apart, also in community, and combining that with some travel and retreat, it sounds so amazing to me right now. It sounds like a fantasy. (laughs) Sister Right has been my fantasy forever to provide writing retreats for women writers. And the thing is, you don't really have to be a writer. You just have to be a creative maker who, who's looking for the narrative inside of your work. So I've had sculptors come. I've had women who work with metal and iron come. I've had quilters come and other textile artists. I've had singers come. It's people who are looking for the narrative inside their stitches or inside of the fire in their welding. Cicerite is phenomenal. It's pretty fabulous, not because I created it, but because the magic that happens at Cicerite. And Cicerite is not for everyone. Cicerite is not, I've never said, and it never will be, a conference or a workshop or a how to write. The foundation of it is not about craft craft inherently, you know what I'm saying, is inside of it, but it's more about giving women safe, beautiful, intentional spaces where they can come, one, and be treated like queens. I am very intentional about where we are, the spaces we inhabit, Mm -hmm. and how you're cared for. I wanted a space where women could be totally nurtured. I know myself as a divorced mother raising three children, what it was like to find the space to write. It was very difficult. And even now, you know, I'm, I'm 67 years old. My 104-year-old mom lives with us. And in this time of the coronavirus, we're also helping with our granddaughter. So here I am again, you know what I'm saying, inside of this yeah. Looking for my own space. Well, I know women are doing this all the time. So, Sister Right was birthed out of that intention. So, I want to invite you publicly to come be a writer in residence at Sister Right because one of the things I said I wanted to do was not always be the talking head of Sister Right, that I would provide these opportunities where I would invite other writers of different genres to come be in residence and they could create whatever they want inside of the residence space. That's worked. That's worked well. We are headquartered, if I can say headquartered. Our first sister right was in Ocracoke at a bed and breakfast that's owned by a friend of mine. And we've been going there for about seven years now. We go twice a year in November and then again in March or April. But of course, 2020, our Ocracoke 
Sister Wright retreat was canceled. I was to be in Ireland for a month. That was canceled. Mm. I was flying from Ireland to Morocco to curate another Sister Wright retreat for two weeks. That was canceled. And then I had a second Moroccan retreat. Technically, I would have be just getting back from Morocco. So Morocco, Ireland, Sedona, Arizona, Tullamore, Ireland, Martha's Vineyard, New Jersey, Virginia. We go to a bed and breakfast in Lynchburg, Virginia. So anyway, we, we have these fabulous times. Women come and they really, really enjoy the sisterhood. The first question is, tell us about your, you know, like, what is your creativity? What is your creative path? And there's even a writing exercise that I require called writing the journey, where I ask them once they get on the ferry, or once they get on the airplane, there's a list of questions, but it's about what does it mean to journey? And what is this particular journey metaphoric of for you? Because I need people to know why they're getting on a plane for seven hours. Right. Why they're driving. So so what's interesting, the drive to get to Ocracoke, the drive from the triangle plus the ferry is seven hours. It's a seven hour f- flight to Morocco. You know, there's a lot to think about. Right. Of just the word journey. And people tell me like, oh, I saw these questions and I thought, oh, this is going to be, I can, you know, women have told me they found themselves standing, leaning over the ferry, just like wailing. Mm -hmm. Some of these questions where they really ask themselves, because I will ask, what are you dropping in the Atlantic Ocean as you're coming to this retreat? What are you leaving behind? What might be weighing you down so you can't show up in your own truths? Right. Not for us, but for yourself your own authenticity for yourself. That becomes a powerful exercise and kind of a, a cleansing exercise where people can show show up fully. There have been some amazing retreats. It's not for everyone. A lot of people need what I call more structure and they don't understand that not having structure is also a structure. It's maybe helping you understand how you might think, how you carve out time for yourself. And that's your responsibility. Yeah. I mean, there are women who come to the retreat and they're still doing business. And I'm like, I think I'm going to make her telephone disappear. I have really good in people's cell phones. That's what they lose over the Atlantic. (laughs) Can't show up. And then it's like, oh, is this, whose phone is this? I found this. Like you're in a business meeting. Nope. You had a retreat, sweetie. That sounds incredible. That sounds amazing. I can't wait until things can safely resume. That sounds, I don't and know. Part of the retreating is if you show up and your body and spirit says, I need to sleep for two days, then we as Sister Right embrace that and support that. And there is no judgment. Mm-hmm. Or you come to Sister Right. I've had women come to Sister Right and like, Jackie, thank you for the space. I have to get the story done. I have to have it done by Monday. And this is why I'm here. And I need y'all the whole space for me. I'm coming to you all just to be in the space, in this room by myself to write. Hmm. They're like, we got you. You don't have to come to the sessions. So we're bringing people hot tea. We're taking up a basket of, of cheese and crackers and fruit, you know, or 
taking cookies and tea up at three o'clock just to check on you, but not to say you need to come play with us. No, it's what you need and how we can support you. I wanted the retreats to be different than any other retreat that people had been to. And it has become just that. I love the heart of that and the generosity. That sounds incredible. Jackie, I want to make sure that we have some time to talk about your newest album, because this is my jam. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) I have a copy. I absolutely have a copy. I've been listening to it because... I am a person who loves to hear language spoken. I'm an audio person. I love performance of language. And sometimes things don't sink in for me the first time. And so I need to revisit work. And so having something that I can listen to as I walk, as I I can listen to it again as I'm doing the dishes or just staring out the window and let the language and the music kind of sink into me is just exactly what I, as an audience member, as a listener, appreciate. So I would like to know, why did you decide to make an album? It's titled The River Speaks of Thirst for people who haven't already experienced it. But why this collection? Why now? Tell me all about that. Well, for years, people have been asking me, do you have a CD? Are your poems on audio? And I'm like, no. (laughs) And people, I mean, for years, your your poem should be audiobooks. And I didn't resist it. It was about time. And mm-hmm. it was about, I don't know how to do that. And then these lovely people fell in my life. Shannon Jackson, who's a poet, introduced me to her husband, Phil Venable. And, you know, like one day we were hanging out and he was like, you need a record. You need an album you know, you need a classic vinyl album. And I was like, okay. I was like, how does one do that? And he says, I got this. So he and another friend, Alec Farrell, they were like, the next thing I know, I'm in a studio. And what was fabulous about the studio, it was Alec's living room. We didn't want to be in a formal, conventional studio. And Alec is amazing. And we engineered this entire album at his house with a lot of laughing and jabbing at each other. So it was time. I had the poetry. There was this, oh, but I need another book. Should I do the album before I do the book? You know? And I'm like, let's just do it. I'm very grateful and I'm very happy that I did it. Also, I want to make a make a point about working across generations the value of intergenerational mingling and and intergenerational working together collaborations because these young men are not are not my peers but the knowledge between the two of them knowing the industry from a to z i mean knowing every facet of it sometimes i would listen and i just felt like they were speaking a foreign language in terms of of a lot of the business side of it and the formalities, you know, of the album being registered and all of that stuff. So it was just the coolest learning curve for me. They're talking second album. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, they're already like, 
well, just save that for the second album. And I'm like, second album? <laughs> and they're like, did you think we're stopping there? And I was like, okay. And they're making videos. I think you, you may have seen the video of Oh My Brother. I did. I did see that. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's a new way. And I'm, I'm open right now for new ways for my work to be in the world. And I know that music, taking my voice out there is very important. Knowing how far the reach of that album is just feels so good. So, of course, you know, the big launch party didn't happen. Right. And all of the travel engagements of promoting the album didn't happen. But hopefully after COVID, we we can have a, a decent christening of the album. Do you hear your poetry with soundscape and sound effects and other voices? Do you experience it like that? Or did you come with ideas about how that sound would be built out? Or did other people give suggestions? How did that part work? When I'm writing, I hear it. I know what it sounds like. And maybe I have a dance background. For many, many years, I was a dancer. So writing for me is a lot like choreography. It's also a lot like being an interior decorator. No, that lamp doesn't go over there. A lamp goes over here. Oh, need more yellow in the room. Oh, no, no, that rug would never go with that sofa. I'm, vis- I'm very visual when I'm writing. And I'm, I'm also, I hear the cadence. I hear the choreography in it. So when we were making the album, I would read. And what was phenomenal is Alec could he- really hear my voice. And he could hear the appropriate tone. I mean, it was eerie almost when I was reading one day and he just like got up from his computer and he went to the piano and just started striking these chords. And I was like, that's it. That's what I hear. So, you know, I'm just blessed to be able to work with a genuine artist who Mm -hmm. can hear what I'm hearing inside of the language, the pauses, you know, like there's a sound for a pause. Yeah. He understood that. There's a sound for a, oh my, he heard that. But yes, when I am creating, I definitely hear the physicality of my language, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. and the movement of it. I'm not trying to put this on you as a writer. I'll just put this on me as a someone who experiences your writing as multi-sensory. So um, whether I'm reading it or I'm hearing it, it sort of travels through all of my senses. I feel like I do feel the physicality. There's so much texture there. And so having that music just helped to build out the dimension of what I'm already experiencing. It's It's been very gratifying. Well, thank you because then that helps us be validated that we that our mark was right. You know, we were very careful. There was like I would hear a piece of music and Alec would say, "No, it's going to drown out your voice." Letter to the other daughter of the Confederacy. I wanted it to be like a battle cry. I wanted we'd found a lot of arch- archival audio civil war battle, but it was too much. You know, it was just too many, too much sensory going on. Right. <laughs> too many things. <laughs> uh, but I think what he did really works because it's unexpected. That music for that is totally unexpected. We didn't want there to be an expectation. We wanted 
for each piece for there to be surprise. Also, I think the sounds should be the from whence I enter for the listener. And you had to, you know what I mean? There had to be a door. There had right. to be a door. So Alec and Phil, the three of us, the three of us, we really did work together. And sometimes they would come up with something like, nah, I'm not feeling that at all. Nope. Uh-uh. And But that was rare. That was very rare. The piece that Charlotte does on the album, Litany for the Possessed, I've always heard that in my brain as a rap song or kind of a spoken word. And I remember I wrote a, a spoken word piece many years ago and I, I was so excited about it and I performed it for my daughters and they both said, no, mom, don't ever do that in public. You're not a rapper and you'd look really silly. You're not a rapper. You do not have the whole spoken word thing down like girlfriend, that is not your thing. So don't don't try this in public, mom, please. So I heard that and and they're like, but I, I always heard it as not my voice, that poem. So, you know, I called Charlotte and I just said, I want to give you this poem and you can do whatever you want to do. So she laid the beats for that poem. That's all her. They're my words, but everything is hers. She engineered the whole piece. So that was fun. And then I, you know, CJ Suet, Chapel Hill Poet Laureate, is on the album because no poetry I heard in a male voice. I heard it in a different voice. Again, not my voice. And The River Speaks of Thirst, I heard as a call and response. And again, all of these amazing human beings were dear friends of mine. When I called Nina, she was like, let's do it. We never rehearsed. She came in the, in the studio one Sunday morning. She's like, you guys got an hour because I'm getting ready to go on <laughs> on tour. You have an hour. And we knocked it out in an hour. Wow. Oh, my God. I mean, there were like no retakes. It was just it was just perfect. I mean, there were the times that she would stop in the middle and she would like she would say, Damn, that's a good line. Can I, can we, like, I want to say that again. You know, I want to sing that line again. It was just beautiful to have the collaboration. And for me, this is what community looks like. You know, they all, I mean, they were all my midwives. Mm. It, it was truly a birthing of a beautiful thing with so many hands in the mix. Oh, and then there's my fabulous gospel singing friend. Jennifer Evans, who in the very first piece, the Juneteenth poem, this I know for sure, I was just so honored that she would give us her voice on that. On that. So yeah, it feels like the right album for the right for this time. Yes. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that we haven't touched on before we close? We talked about a lot, sweet woman. Uh, <laughs> We can talk forever. I just want to make sure that that we we don't gloss over anything that is super important. Well, I think you've covered everything. I will just say that it is my just immense honor and and pleasure to serve the state of North Carolina as a North Carolina poet laureate to to be able to to be in so many different communities and to witness the power of story inside of communities how communities are telling their stories, 
with each other, to each other, documenting their stories, being encouraged to write. I'm just so honored for all of these invitations. And I'm honored now to be in in this other space that we're all this virtual universe mm-hmm. doing the work that I'm doing. And and I'm grateful to people like you who who keep me accountable, you know, keep me accountable and who help me take carry out my responsibilities of making sure that even in this time, the people of North Carolina know that the Poet Laureate is still working and still trying to serve and still trying to be very, very present to all of us. So I think I can end there. I'm very grateful for your invitation. And I certainly look forward to any possibilities of collaboration between you and I. Oh, thank you, Jackie. That means so much to me. I appreciate you so much. Thanks so much for listening. For more information, see our website, artistsoapbox.org. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.